This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account, a podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Today, I'm very delighted to be speaking with uh, Mohamed Hashim. He is the executive director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation here in Canada, for those of you listening south of the border. Um, we have, uh, uh, Mohammed and I have actually talked before, I think a month ago, and we just had a quick conversation where we, it, we realized we could talk for three hours, <laughs> but, uh, obviously our schedule couldn't permit. So I'm so happy that we made it, uh, back here, but, uh, I'll have Mohammed kind of tell us a little bit more about his background, but, um, uh, he's, he's really currently holding a, a very important role, uh, during this you know, reckoning on race that we're uh, experiencing. Uh, he has a background in labor, but uh, welcome, Mohammed, to Black and White, and uh, thanks again for making the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. I, I deeply appreciate the opportunity, and um, you're right. It's a, it's a difficult moment right now in terms of how we talk about race and what the expectations that governments, people have in terms of dealing with racism and the systems that have supported it and um and i find myself in a very unique and odd place because i come from a very activist background i've been an organizer a community organizer for 20 years and now i have to run a federal crown corporation which is an arm's length body of the of the federal government which is a bit of an outer body experience i gotta tell you (laughs) hey you asked for it right (laughs) <laughs> I replied, well, I don't think they would give it to me, apparently they did. <laughs> well, you know, from uh, everything, obviously, I've, I've done, you know, we've talked, I've done some research from everything I see. You and your teammates at the CRRF are really moving the ball forward. So I want to talk a little bit about that and where we were connected and we started talking about one of the initiatives that your organization has been working with, which was really around awareness, where you started, I think, about in 2020. And really, this was about connecting with community groups and, and others to try and get the awareness level up in the communities across this country around racism. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, we're actually launching a number of initiatives in the new year around this. So in the beginning, the first week of January, we're launching a new fund that's about $3 million over the next 18 months that we'll be giving to community groups across the country uh, for them to, you know, to organize. Well, I th- exactly. We, what we really want to see is how community drive, communities drive different conversations around issues that matter to public <laughs> policy. I know what you mean. are not just talking about the difficulty of racism, but talking about solutions and how do we actually build consensus around uh, getting there? 
And I think that, you know, yeah, because I think, I mean, I, I'm kind of sick and tired of, of just talking about how bad racism is. You know what I mean? Like what I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so tired of it. I just, I, what I want to do is I want to bring people together who have the power to be able to, to move on stuff for them to say, here, we're going to demonstrate a sense of both political leadership, uh, expertise and understanding. Uh, we're going to convene the right voices that will tell us, you know, what the potential impacts could be from this solution or that solution, and then try to create some political impetus to move in that direction. Because like, honestly, like it's been, you know, I, 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 I read, I read statements of solidarity all the time. And I kind of look for the nuance to see how people um, like are expressing it. And sometimes you see glimmers of nuance in there from a corporate statement or from a politician statement where I feel like, ah, oh, okay, that's, they're actually saying something that they feel. Um, but oftentimes I'm just looking. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I, I hear what you're saying and, and we're going to, I want to explore that a little further, but I'm going to go back. So my understanding is that one of the programs, you're doing many things, but one of the programs is really to offer grants to community organizations, individuals, people who are really going to try and get the word out, if you will, about racism and systemic racism and, and raise the awareness level. And then uh, I think you were very successful in getting funding uh, from the federal government to really give you a budget to amplify what you were doing and really grow that program, which is where you're heading into in the new year. Can you give us an example of something, an organization that you did provide a grant to and some of the work that they did? Yeah, we've, uh, we, we created a number of, we gave about 15 to 20 organizations, I think 18 organizations to be exact, um, last year, a number of supports. I think they, the supports ranged from 15 to, you know, 10 to $15,000 or so. You know, there was, there were a number of, there was podcasts, there were, um, community events, there was projects, there was some research. Um, and I, and, you know, one of them that I, I found just to really help shape the conversation was done by the Chinese Canadian National Council. Cause I think during the pandemic, um, and leading up to the pandemic, and even I bet you post the pandemic, we will see a rise in anti-Asian racism. And um, being able to verbalize what that feels like, what is the impact of different communities uh, is really important. I think that the project that we supported really helped uh, put that conversation right directly in front of policymakers where they had to respond to things um, and, and elevate the importance of addressing anti-Asian racism. So those are the type of, and they did that through putting together a big conference around hate and hate crimes and online hate. Uh, and how the implications were on Asian communities. And that, that kind of work is where you bring people together, you bring policymakers together, have them understand the impact of it in a real way. Um, it truly elevated the level of importance of the issue, but also um, starts seeding the ideas for those who have the ability to move on things, to start moving those things. And I'm not saying that they would just automatically become woke the next day and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> sure. I, I'm gonna solve this. But like um, these things build upon each other, and you know, seventy five hundred dollars or seven thousand, ten thousand dollars is not going to solve racism, but it's going to help 
amplify those ideas and issues in ways that are strategic and smart. And I think that uh, through many of those initiatives, we, we accomplish that. That's amazing. Interesting. I had a conversation with a, a Chinese Canadian last week and we were talking and uh, I was mentioning my book that's coming out of the same title, Black and White, already in February. Um, it's almost here, wow. Mohammed. You know, we talked about COVID. We talked about uh, people talking about the China virus and, of course, all the increased violence against uh, Asian Canadians and Americans. And I asked her if she felt it. And she said, yes, you know, walking around and people looking at her differently sometimes feeling a little bit fearful. This kind of racism fueled by hate in some ways and by by leaders, right, by people who know better, is very dangerous, right? So I think getting, you know, the work of trying to educate and inform and sensitize people to the real impacts of what this type of discrimination can have, I, I think is so important. I mean, just to kind of build on that, to be honest, you know, I, I was very active in the Islamophobia fight over the last, you know, many years. And um, the, this moment almost feels like it was, it's, you know, three, four years after 9-11 for how Islamophobia felt within the Muslim community. It, felt, it honestly feels like 2004 Islamophobia. And uh, where the community had no idea how to express it, how to, how to amplify it, how to push back against it, but we knew it was there. It was creeping up on us. You know, we could see how... I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, National Security Forces created a new, I guess, a security screening for partnerships, uh, for international partnerships. So, for example, of uh, international partnerships of, of academic institutions. So if you're a university and you got a partnership with, you know, a Chinese company, now you have to do a security screening because um, what they're saying is for intellectual property theft. But... Um, what is being felt as as a bit of a chill because uh, towards investment from you know Asian companies because or companies or institutions or organizations um, and partnering with them because there's a heightened sense of suspicion you know espionage or intellectual property that's coming from from Asia so that that what what it's creating is a bit of a in my opinion a little bit of a chill within Asian Canadians who are looking for academic partners in, in Asia, but are not necessarily not sure how to go about doing so, and what are the risks, and are second-guessing whether the risks are worth the payoff. Of course, of course. There's that one more layer to, I'll use the word, overcome, just where the playing field's a little bit off again. Right? Right. Is there intellectual property uh, risks? Absolutely. Is that everywhere? Absolutely. Is <laughs> exactly. it more so coming from like one place or not? I don't know. I like to see some data before I can say, let's focus more here and there. But like, you know, and is the policy directed to one group only? No. But is it applicable to more, to like one area more so than others? Yes. So is there going to be more targeted impacts of so? Yes. And therefore, yeah. let's, let's evaluate that now. And, and, and talk about it internally and externally. And, because I think that like, hatred comes not so much out of, well, I, I just hate you. I think that, I mean, obviously that overt racism exists, but a lot of times I think that hatred comes out of a deep sense of fear. Yes. And suspicion and fear create that, that feeling of, 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 
of distance dehumanization that allows people the room to to hate. Yeah, of the other, right? It's of like, uh, well, this is a good segue into some more great work that your organization has done just recently with a survey that came out in November with lots of data. And I heard you speak on the findings and, and I want to hear the the hard numbers from you. But what caught me, what struck me was you were sounding the alert, the alarm here on what the data was kind of saying. And maybe you could share with us first what the survey and how you went about it and what it was looking to reveal and then what some of the data that you collected and what it says uh, from your perspective. So we did a survey with the Environment Institute and it's a very large survey. We did it, uh, you know, we did it two years apart. So we, like the first one was done in 2019 and it kind of looked at like this, like the state of race relations in Canada, uh, which is, is an unfair title for, for, for the research itself. Cause I have to give a couple of disclaimers cause I don't want to make it sound like we figured it all out <laughs> because we didn't. And, you know, we didn't, like we didn't, disaggregate how racism impacts Muslims and Jews and religious minorities out of it. So the report talks mostly about anti-Blackness and anti-Indigenous racism uh, and anti-Asian racism to certain degrees, but um, does not talk about anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. So that's definitely a thing. However, beyond that, what is absolutely true about it is that, you know, over the last two years, we've had a seriously increase, a huge increase in awareness around racism. And, you know, people have reacted to that. There's been the solidarity statements, there's been this or that. But over the last two years, do people today feel like enough is being done that tomorrow will be better? And the answer to that is no. And I think that, you know, awareness is a double-edged sword. And it's a double-edged sword because it creates a level of expectation for politicians and public policymakers to respond to things. It creates a sense of awareness amongst communities and creates trauma within those communities because, you know, I don't know anybody who, uh, any of my Black friends who were not impacted by George Floyd's killing. Well, exactly. Everybody felt it. Yes. And people react to it differently. Some people get up and fight. And some people uh, say, okay, here, I'm going to put my head down further. So it is a double-edged sword because, you know, some people don't, don't want to fight. And I think that like, when you have that kind of awareness, you increase the level of expectation that change will be coming. Well, of course, one of the numbers, the figures that, that struck me, it said 28% of Canadians believe that race relations have improved. That's an underwhelming <laughs> number. <laughs> or, or sorry, I'm not. I was never very good at math, but that's like, uh, what was that? Seventy-two <laughs> percent. It's gone backwards. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because people they don't feel the difference. Like, yeah, the awareness is a good thing. If the awareness happens without change, without new policies, without you know societal norms being changed, it feels disappointing. Because you're like, I, I went through that emotional energy of acknowledging this horrific stuff. I've been dealing with it. Thank goodness somebody else, the rest of the country understands what this means to me. But like, still nothing changed? Well, it's interesting you say that because on that point, 
through the work and writing my book and talking to many, many people. One of the things I landed on was kind of a theme of, of hope in regards to be better, do better, live better together. But, you know, in the be better was if you're not aware and you have a, a high level of ignorance in regards to the issues of systemic racism or racism in general, then maybe you have to take some action to, in my opinion, to be more aware of those things, right? And now, okay, now we're saying the reckoning on race from 2020 has given more people, it's hard to hide from from the fact that it's being spoken and talked about everywhere. And even this past summer with the tragic news of the unmarked graves of residential school children that was found in Kamloops. And then, you know, that whole conversation and people go, you know, I, I didn't know anything about that. But I'm saying now you do. So what are you doing with the knowing, <laughs> right? So you have the awareness, you, you have the knowing, and is that going to awaken something in you, right? Whatever that may be, like, what are you going well, that's what that's where we're hoping. And if you are awakened, then hopefully that should lead you to doing something, right? To doing better, yeah. using my words. So, you know, because if you don't, so, it's, it's kind of like just like it's kind of like trauma porn, to be honest. It's like, oh, I've put, I've displayed my hurt to you. Thank you very much for uh, listening to me. I've listened, and then the other person says, "I've listened to you. I've heard you." <laughs> but yeah, I'm gonna go back to my yacht. Yes, yes. You know, I do nothing. That's yeah. well, even more. You know, I, I, I'm one of those people that I always looks and says, who is doing something, right? And I think, you know, the governments here and there, provincially, at all levels, are doing something. You, you know, we can say some of it is tokenism or whatever. But in, for example, in your case, the federal government has invested in your organization, right, to totally. do some tangible action. So I think... As opposed to saying, oh, it's not enough. I'm thinking they're doing something and advancing. Yeah. But to me, one of the most egregious example of doing something that's nothing, what we're seeing in the province of Quebec, right, where they have did this commission, these 25 points. Some of them are very fluffy. Some of them are very, um, in my opinion, superficial. Some of them, I would say a handful are are actually rooted in something that could be something important and different, like police reform or training. But, you know, I make this correlation. So this is what's happening in that province. I'm, that's just one example. I'm not saying they're the only ones that are having some issues. You know, it seems we're having these issues, not just at the individual levels, but uh, in all these different levels of our system and institutions. And the other thing I just wanted to add, which you made a point, alluded to, was, yeah, yeah, we're we're on a path, we'll do this over the next five years and over the next eight years. And, and you know, as a black man and, and talking to other people of color, indigenous people, we're going like, what about now? Yeah. Right? What about now? Well, I can tell you, I mean, from my perspective... You know, we see a lot of things happening. I can name you at least a couple of public policy issues that are currently being crafted in every province across Canada. You know, so there is happening. Right in, from British Columbia is doing a full police services act review, which is huge. I mean, it could have massive implications, particularly in terms of the relationship between the contracted RC, because BC doesn't have a provincial police like Ontario and Quebec do. So they have RCMP detachments in different places. But, you know, that thing has a huge potential of, of changing the relationship between the RCMP and First Nations peoples. Because many of the times on reserves, there's First Nations policing, but then there's RCMP detachments that are way better funded and outside. But uh, the relationships are tense. They're always tense. Look at what's wet. 
Yeah. Well, I'm from so, BC, so I've seen that firsthand from growing up there. Yeah. Right. So there's huge implications that are that are happening over there. There's police reform happening in the city of Toronto and the city of Montreal and and many different places. I think that those things are happening. Our job has been to kind of figure out where are those things going? Are they going in the right direction? How do we push and prod? How do we connect this expert with that public policy conversation in order to kind of shift it so that it gets better nuanced or goes deeper? We're monitoring a lot of this work out there that's happening. And we're doing it because a lot of times the political situation and the expectation in different places is different. Because to be frank, racism is very, very different across Canada. The experience uh, of being black as an African Nova Scotian to coming from Jamaica and, you know, Rexdale or, or, or being Somali you know, up in Etobicoke is a very different experience. Maybe. Yes, of course. So every jurisdiction is kind of thinking about how they can react to their local surroundings to a certain degree. But there are systemic things that we could point to uh, and that we consistently do point to internally to them that kind of widen their scope of understanding. And that's that's the exciting work that we get to do over here at the foundation. So let me ask you this, because this is a huge topic of conversation. It's both in regards to the actual use of the word systemic racism. Uh, I've had conversations where people are going, I don't understand what you're talking about fully, right? I'm not a racist. Yeah. I'm going, we're not talking about that. We have, as we know, government people who refuse to actually acknowledge that it exists, which is, I believe, problematic. So we know what it is. The data talks about what systemic racism is in the education system, in our healthcare system, in policing, in the judicial system. So what do you think is the barrier there? Is it with the people? Is it with the governments? What is your sense? I have many, many thoughts on this one. Um, let me zoom out a little bit. I think Canada has a bit of an angel complex. We think of ourselves as a society that we're not American, so we're a bit better. Like those Americans, they have Jim Crow laws. Those are those are terrible. You know, we were we were the destination of freedom from the Underground Railroad. We didn't do anything over here. So that mythology that we tell ourselves blinds us to the reality of experience many have faced. And I think a lot of the times, first of all, language is ever moving. So if someone would have said, we need to come up with the anti-black racism strategy 10 years ago, people would be like, well, why are we talking about racism and not just that? And why are we trying to focus on anti-black racism? And there would have been protests around that, <laughs> using it. But now people are like, yeah, you know, it's racism impacts people differently. Let's talk about how it impacts black Canadians. And let's talk about anti-blackness. So that angel complex is that overarching resistance towards understanding systemic racism. The second thing is people don't want to admit that systems have been advantageous to some and disadvantageous to others because it makes it feel like you took advantage of the system. And that, like, hold on a second, I've been playing pretty fair here. Like, what's up with that? And like that actualization that it has been an unfair system that you have taken advantage of and that your advantage is alive and present is a hard thing for people to acknowledge. Yeah. And then on top of that, the third thing is the people who are responsible for the systems. 
they're like, hold on a second. Like I've been trying my entire career to get to this position of authority in this place. And now you want me to call it racist? I've given my life to this thing. So there's that resistance to say, no, yes, we have issues. No, it's not that big a problem. Because if I acknowledge that, then I acknowledge that me being here and in this place has been a result of that problem. So there's that reluctance for leadership to kind of do so. Of course, of course, all great points. And and just to go back, knowing you had an advantage or not knowing you had an advantage will possibly give people a different way to look at it and act accordingly. Interesting. And, you know, we've been talking about white privilege now for multiple years. But in my book, I, I suggest using white advantage. And I like how you've just used the word because even in that, the word privilege has put people's backs up, right? Where they go, what are you talking about? I, I worked hard on my life. I came from nothing. My parents were poor and I put myself through school and I, you know, I'm going, we're not talking about that, right? And, and so it's, again, trying to, to clarify the language to get to the essence of what we're really talking about. And then in your first point about mythology, I wrote a whole chapter on Canada's mythology on race. And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people and they say, thank God we're not the United States. I said, well, you know, we had slavery here. And they go, what are you talking about, right? Black people weren't really allowed to buy homes in certain neighborhoods until the middle of the 20th century, right? It's like, you know, I'm 55 years old. There's people that weren't allowed to go and drink in places in Montreal at the Forum, et cetera, just, you know, in, in the early 60s. So, so I think you're spot on there that speaking of awareness and the work that you're doing with the foundation, this is where we really need to recalibrate people's knowledge and understanding of the country that we are here. And I think that's going to take a lot of work. But on the other side, I think people need to want to hear it and learn it and accept it as truth, right? Because we know we're living in an era where the truth is malleable these days, especially if we look, you know, what's happened, <laughs> happened south of the border. Anyways, we have lots of ground to cover with Mohammed. We're going to take a break here and we'll be right back. Hey everyone, if you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting in place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. 
It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services. Positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Welcome back to Black and White. I'm having an amazing conversation with my guest, Mohab Ashim. He is the executive director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. I want to maybe switch gears a little bit. And I heard you recently speak about hate on social media. And we know we've been talking about social media and and we've had, uh, you know, Facebook and, and, and all those people in, you know, in front of Congress trying to you know, it's almost like the the cigarette executives from 20 years ago going, no, no, social media is totally social right. media is not addictive, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, it's not bad for our children. You know, meanwhile, there's like a giant pile of paper that says that it is. Um, but you you were talking about you know the hate and you know I call it the social shouting networks where people go and spew their anger and unfiltered opinions about things with really impunity. And so I think there's that kind of stuff. But also, I think you were what I heard you speaking about was the hate on social media and the detriment that that's having, especially on young people. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like when you look at social media over the last number of years, um, I, I I got my my Facebook account through my U of T email address. So I, I was one of the early adopters of Facebook. When they didn't even have a news page, it was just it was an incredible place of discovery at the time where you get to connect with your friends. My mom still uses it to connect with her friends from 30, 40 years ago. Uh, so it's got an incredible like, connectivity tissue where we get to meet people who we may have lost contact with, but somehow through some algorithm, we're able to find each other relatively easily online. It's, it's kind of miraculous that we're, like the world has been shrunk so closely so that, you know, that six degree of separation could become six clicks from friends to friends to friends to friends to friends. And, you know, you're there. But, you know, that, that miracle that it provided, to be frank, also created a negative side around just the amplification of hate, where before the environment felt like an open opportunity for discovery. Now people treat it with a sense of trepidation. I don't know any parent who's got a kid between 10 to 15 years old who is not worried about like what the experience of their kids will be on social media because the environment has changed. We've done so many surveys on this because it's such a major problem. We're kind of tracking to figure out you know, how much support there is for legislation on this. Because honestly, I, I don't trust social media companies to come up with guardrails. You know, if we figure out, you know, how to create a PG rating versus a R rating versus, you know, a G rating, we can figure out how to create similar guardrails in the online experience as well. Uh, and if we don't, we're basically saying it's all open for whatever. And that's just not a fair 
thing to do. And I'm not even getting into like the privacy implications of all this stuff in the future. No, of, uh, of which course. Are, which are all real. And we think about those things constantly. But just in terms of like the level of hate that's out there, the volume is so high. You know, almost 70% of 18 to 29 year olds have seen, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic, harassment, like, you know, violence online in social media. So it's just unbridled, like level, really. It's crazy. And it needs to be reined in in a certain way. And are governments the best place to do so? Maybe. I believe, I believe that they are. Do we treat the Canadian democracy as we do with a dictatorship government? No. But like, are, do there need to be rules around uh, how do we deal with this stuff here? Absolutely. And well, I think that- I agree with you. Yeah, there's 10,000 reasons why we shouldn't do it. But there's one really good reason that we should do it. And that's because we know it's harming our future kids. And it's harming them in a really bad way. So let's get ahead of that. You know what's interesting? To, just a couple comments there. I have young children, and my son is five, and he loves his iPad, and he loves his YouTube, right? And, you know, I, I'm a kid that grew up watching cartoons on Saturday morning in the early 70s. You no, know, I remember, like, everything. Uh, <laughs> I watched everything. Uh, Bugs, I, I Bugs Bunny. I watched uh, Hercules. I watched uh, the, the Jetsons, Scooby-Doo. Uh, I mean, name it. If it was a cartoon, I watched it. And uh, I remember in the early days, it was, you know, a lot of commercials for toys and all that. And of course, you know, as we progressed the decades, there was rules around that, right? What you could do in terms of advertising to children. But now my son, this is like, you know, the 2020s, my son is watching YouTube and he's watching these unpacking of toys, right? Which is essentially advertising for toy companies. And these kids and these ladies that are unpacking stuff are making millions of dollars. And I thought to myself, why is there not regulation that's on broadcast TV the same for this? So I'm just making the point that we do need to address these, be it, you know, kids advertising or hate and and things like that in the same way that we've tackled these issues in the past. And I want to read you a couple things. So last October 20, I wrote an article in the Globe and Op-Ed And it was really about why we need to eliminate white advantage. And, you know, it's the Globe and Mail. I picked up a copy in print because I'm still old school and I wanted to see it. And, you know, and for for those south of the border, you know, it's our version of the New York Times for for lack of better equivalent. Totally. And uh, and so, so, you know, I cut it. I showed everyone. and, And then I thought, oh, I'll go see what it looks like online. And, of course, there were comments, right? And someone said, don't read the comments. Don't read the comments, but of course, I started reading them. There was about 180. Wow. So in my book, I actually, I, I, I selected some of the greatest hits, right? Because one of the things, because <laughs> some of the people say to me, they go, oh, you know, Stephen, that's the past. It's different now. You know, people are better. I go, okay, um, here's here's one of my favorites. Pioneer 27. This is the, their handles, right? Of They're course. still identical. Why are non-whites so eager to live in white countries? Whites via mass immigration are in the process of bestowing their homelands to non-whites. Normally, living things fight over territory rather than cede it voluntarily. So by the way, this is like Globe and Mail readers, right? So if you go to their media kit, right? These are educated, above average income. Let me find you. This is a white country. It's not our problem if you cannot put up with the disadvantage of you. So just don't come here, right? Uh, I feel responsible. This is ALK 8343. I feel as responsible for slavery as I do for the Spanish Inquisition. 
<laughs> Not at all. Right. Anyways, you get the point. It gets worse. Right. Yeah. So, I, you know, a couple points there is that, of course, you know, I read it. It affected me in the moment. And then, of course, I used it now to to teach and to educate and I can handle it. But this is the kind of stuff that's out there. And people say, oh, no, there's no racism in this country there. You know, that's the past. Even why are you why are you still looking back? Look forward. Let's talk about the future. Right. And my point to them is we need to acknowledge the truths in the past and that this is a real issue. Let's agree to that together, and then we can take some steps forward together. Everyone needs to, I'm, I'm talking everyone, black, color, white people, we need to consume it in bite size to understand so that we can kind of get to this place where we kind of go, okay, you know, it's like climate change. Even right-wing people now are going, okay, it's real. Yeah. The systems were designed so well to create connective tissue that we didn't realize that we were getting addicted to that. We thought we were just being sold connect uh, connections, but what we were really being sold was addiction to time online. And time online means exposure to advertising. You know, you talk to any social media, like any any organization who's like, like who's selling ads or doing advertising online or advertising at all, like the first thing that they go to say is like, yes, this is how many eyeballs we have. This is how many, like, how much time people have spent on ads that we've created. This is why our ads are the best ads. So therefore, you know, like people, th- this is this is the full industry around this monetizing people's attention. And you know, what we were sold was connection. What we got hooked to was was you know being exposed into the environment. And you know, it's it's definitely more complicated than it was obviously with TV or radio where you have publishers who are held responsible for such. But I don't think it's as difficult as it's being put out to be because we have created these guardrails before. And, of course. And, and society is okay with it. Fundamentally, I think it's a choice, right? These are sophisticated organizations. They are, in my opinion, choosing not to do it for the reasons that are corporate driven, right? It would be great if we could go, oh, they're just going to make the changes. And they told us they were going to play nice and and protect our children and, and stop hate and stuff. But I think they're going to have to be made to do it. And, um, you know, I think, I think it's a really important thing. My kids are young. You know, I'm kind of going, oh, my God, like, you know, what is it going to look like? You know, maybe in, in 10 years, I'm going to go, maybe watching the unpacking of toys videos is it wasn't as bad if he, that's what he stayed doing, you know, at, 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 as a teenager. So I, I've actually pulled away. I've, I've pulled away myself personally for, I mean, honestly, ever since I got this job, I've kind of been pulling away from social media, like not only because like I don't have the time to kind of engage in it, but I just find it to be such a cesspool i i i find it frustrating both about the hate and the abuse that we see but i also hate the like the lack of nuance and complexity there is online and i am one of those people that that seeks to find that like i want to talk to people who are complicated who are who don't have the answers who are struggling to figure out the answers who who are not going to judge me for saying, well, I don't know the answer to this or that you screwed up. So therefore you're a horrible human being. Well, you know, I'm sorry. I did screw up, but like, let's figure out a way for me to be better and for you to understand and be more generous too. And I just, I'm just sick and tired of like all of it. So pulling away has been my response and probably not the best response, but well, actually I, I, I don't know about that. I think, I think, you know, you're playing a different role now, but it, it's interesting. I, I, when I did my research, 
I came across a few more things, you know, uh, specifically related to Islamophobia. You had a high profile, and, and there's actually two sides to the coin, right? When the murder of George Floyd and the reckoning, and in my West End Toronto neighborhood where I live, I'm, you know, I, I joked my family, I'm like the black of the village, right? There's other black people and people of color and stuff, but, you know, I definitely have a high profile. And of course, it was like Black Lives Matter hotline, Stephen Dorsey speaking, right? And of course, it's all like uh, people I know, friends, family calling, saying, you know, how are you doing? How are you feeling? They're asking, what should I do? Should I post online? How do I, how do I become a good ally? So, you know, hundreds and hundreds of phone calls. And uh, I, I was reading about you where your profile when you were really out in communities and uh, as a Muslim and people were calling you and asking you for your thoughts and, and your profile and you were assisting families who uh, confronted tragedies and and so to me, I looked at that, well, that's positive. He's got that profile. People feel that they have someone uh, like them that they can reach out to and, and, and someone who has a command of the issues and the language and the media training. And on the other side, there was, you know, I'll call it right-wing media who were trying to uh, negatively spin your role in the community. Can you, can you share with us a little bit about kind of that both sides of the coins of that experience? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was. I have never received that much amount of hate in such a concentrated amount of time in my life. But um, you know, there was there was a case where there's a person who had severe mental health issues, and he went and shot a number of people. He killed two young girls, and it was horrible. It was horrible. It rocked our entire city of Toronto. People were feeling unsafe because this, this person went as a shooter and shot people up in a popular restaurant district. So everybody was rattled. His name was a Muslim name. So the next day I got a call from a friend of mine who worked in the community where that person lived. And he's like, oh, I know that person who did like, who was involved with the Danforth shooting. This is before the like the name was even released. And he's like, yeah, I was the guy, like he worked as a community youth worker. And he, he was the one who got him a job at the Shoppers Drug Mart. Because um, he gets like youth jobs in the community. That's that's his job. Um, so he's like, oh, like, let me put you in contact with the shooter's family. Because many of us are worried that because his name uh, is Muslim, that people are going to try to frame it as terrorism. And so everybody in the community kind of knew that. He put me in contact with the family, and the family's like, yes, you know, this is a big concern for us. We don't, like, and I don't know how they have the awareness at that time, but they're like, we don't want our community to wear this. This is not about the community. This is about their son and brother being sick and uh, doing horrible, horrible, horrible things. So they wanted to put out a statement just explaining, uh, ex expressing their sympathy and sorrow uh, but also explaining from their perspective what had happened. So I helped them write their statement of the shooter's family. And then talked about the mental health experience of the shooter. And um, for that, the right-wing media called me a spin doctor for trying to manipulate the truth because this was really terrorism. Like the entire Muslim community should be blamed for this. This is all about Islamic terrorism. This is about this, that, this, that, this, that. Well, none of it was, which was true. And even the police report that came after the investigation 
they did a full 30 page report or 25 page report by the Toronto police that that validated all of this stuff afterwards. Of course, um, of course. Well, it's but, it's interesting. Uh, we just marked the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which terrible event and the terrorists uh, who committed the act, obviously. Horrible. Horrible, horrible. But what it triggered was this whole backlash against the entire Muslim community uh, in the United States and in Canada, which uh, I just looked at some data recently that has continued and really destabilized the whole community. These are the things that are, like you mentioned, are very complex to um, deconstruct and explain to people when some people would rather just make that connection to something very negative and untrue, right? It doesn't matter to them. The sensationalism about the story is more important than getting to the truth, which is what I was talking before, is like, at some point we gotta get to some truth together, you know? You call it the angel complex. Taking Donald Trump aside here, because that's a, a historical anomaly, I hope, um, I can't imagine an American president not upholding the Constitution of the United States, right, as a fundamental position that they hold, right? And so I, I'm so upset and confused in some ways why even in the most recent federal election here in Canada that happened I think it was yeah September, that none of the federal uh, leaders, I, th I think except for the Green Party leader, um, directly addressed Bill 21 to say that they would do everything to protect Canadians living in the province of Quebec in terms of their religious and all of their, their, their uh, rights in regards to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and to do whatever. They were all very tepid. I think one leader even said they would never, if they were elected prime minister, they would never even go against any laws that were uh, put forth by uh, a provincial assembly, uh, which I thought was ridiculous. You know, I understand the politics part of it, but at the end, like, you know, um, you know, as the famous Nike ad, the Colin Kaepernick, don't, don't you have to, don't you have to stand for something? And if you can't stand for the Constitution and the Charter of Rights, like, does that, how can you want to be the Prime Minister of Canada? So, you know, as a federal public service, I have opinions on the matter. Um, and like the way I, I would frame this is first of all, I, I don't think it was, like, yes, was there trepidity? Yes, were people dancing? Yes, were, uh, would it have been better to have heard um, unequivocal, hard solidarity towards ending this? Yes. That would have been appreciated. Um, but I think the people will decide. Like we have a democratic system that in which, like just like Donald Trump lost his last election, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> I think that as somebody who's kind of not suspicious, but like I'm always a bit wary of, you know, like even laws, because laws are sometimes racist. Laws are discriminatory. Laws are written by people in a time that reflected a society that they lived in and that society evolves and laws change and, and, and these things happen. So I firmly believe this is this, like, this one is going to, it, it's not going to hold the test of time because it is discriminatory. And I think that I, I have a deep sense of commitment towards our democratic systems and our people who of Canada, who I believe, I honestly believe will choose the right way of moving on this. It might be a little while, 
because the political reality of, of Quebec is what it is. And, you know, to be frank, like, I, I'm not going too much into Quebec history, but, you know, Quebec has a very deep history of being oppressed by, you know, Anglo-Canadians, by the church. And a lot of what this is, is a reaction to that. It's a weaponization of that reaction. But I think that the emotional charge that has led to this is one that's generational. That is not always going to be there for sure. Because uh, the younger generation did not f feel that sense of anxiety or, and fear uh, that the older generations do have. So there's a time that's going to play against it. But also, I think the laws will strike it down. I like what I'm hearing because what I'm hearing from you is, is hope. I tend to lean to the hope myself. I've, I've been an optimist and idealist my, my entire life. And I think with action and purpose, I think you can get to the hope. So it's nice to hear that you have some hope that some of the things will change. You're also doing some work. You are leading an organization that is helping to get to the action and the hope. So, you know, I, I commend you there. So where do you think we are now? We're, you know, we're in a fourth wave of COVID. We're two years. We've had the wave of racial reckoning post the George Floyd murder. We've had the whole indigenous reckoning that was really brought back to the fore with the residential school unmarked graves that were discovered. And now we expect there more will come, which is just a devastating story. Again, a story that, that indigenous people have been telling forever, but nobody was really listening because I still hear people say, what are you talking about? I've never heard of that. And so where do you think we are now? Hopefully we come out of COVID in 2022 and, you know, what do you see ahead and, and how quickly and, and what are your, you know, what are your hopes for that? So uh, I am also an eternal optimist. <laughs> I definitely feel and will always give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I always feel optimistic and will always give people the benefit of the doubt. However, this kind of reminds me, I was, I had come from a course on the Holocaust and I was talking to a friend of mine who was a, a rabbi at a conservative shul sorry, synagogue. And we were talking about, you know, some of the stuff that I had learned. And he's like, I don't know why we're talking about this right now. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, you know, after the destruction of the second temple, us Jews didn't even talk about the destruction for 150 years. We needed some time to absorb it and think about what it actually means for us. And what has the impact been on us? And how have we dealt with this trauma? So the Holocaust was like 75, 76 years ago, 80 years ago. I don't think we're there of even knowing what this trauma means to us. And right now we're trying to figure this out, but like, you know, as a community, we're trying to deal with it and figure it out, but it's still, it's still close. And then that, that makes me think about how, you know, genocide survivors always write down the names of people they knew in the immediate aftermath of the genocide. That's the first thing that they, they write their names, like somewhere in case they get killed and therefore they can, they, they can have a piece of paper where a name is written so that the memory of somebody's existence is not erased from history. And I think Canada is going through that awakening where we are just understanding what the genocide that has existed here on Canada towards Indigenous peoples, how the implications of racism uh, have been really enacted against Black people for many, for, for centuries here. And 
And I think that reckoning is happening, that awareness is happening. I feel deeply optimistic, more so than any time in my life, of people realizing the reality of such. And that's only because of the activists who were out there in the forefront who elevated it and were unapologetic about their truth. However, I also think that you know change is coming. Major change takes time. It does. I'm working for a government institution. I see how much time it takes. And that like really be like not clap for people who are doing the right thing, but acknowledge what they're doing and encourage them to do more because we're not there yet. And there's so much work that needs to happen. Absolutely. Uh, well said. Mohammed. thank you so much for today. Uh, like I said, I know you and I could be talking about this for hours, but, you know, we do have to, our day jobs, right? Uh, <laughs> my guest today has been Mohammed Hashim. He's the executive director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation here in Canada. You can visit their website. What's the uh, website, Mohammed? that they can go find out more? Uh, the, our website is crrf-fcrr.ca. Thanks for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And be on the lookout for my upcoming book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural take on white advantage and the path to change coming in early 2022, actually February 1st, just around the corner. You can also find me on Twitter at DorseyBNW. And remember, we can all be better, do better, and live better together. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.